Cinema Junkie hits the road today. All roads lead to Shanghai, but uh, not everyone is welcome so officially. That's Victor Mature, and he's going to take us to Shanghai by way of the Arthur Lines Film Noir Festival in Palm Springs. Welcome back to listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. It's always fun to talk about film noir. And with the 23rd edition of the Noir Festival in Palm Springs coming up this weekend, it's the perfect time to revisit the dark alleys and crooked roads of the noir underworld. Even if you can't make the trip to Palm Springs, you can seek out these films online and enjoy the insights of my guests. Victor Mature's daughter, Victoria, will talk about her dad's career and specifically his exotic performance in The Shanghai Gesture, while film historian and author Alan K. Rohde will introduce us to a noir western with Robert Mitchum. So saddle up for some uncommon noir journeys from the streets of Shanghai to the Old West. And it winds up right here with Reardon waiting outside to see if I go with you or if he shoots me in the back. And, as with any noir road trip, prepare for a bumpy ride of deceit, murder, betrayal, double crosses, and maybe a femme fatale or two. I need to take one quick break, and then I'll be back for a cinema junkie road trip with a first stop in Shanghai. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Welcome back to Cinema Junkie. Victoria Mature is a good friend and a champion of her father's work. She's come out to more than one Film Geeks event to tell us behind-the-scenes stories about her dad and even to sing the theme song from his film, After the Fox. For today's episode, I'm just going to give Victoria the floor so she can provide a capsule rundown of Victor Mature's career and to share some background on the film The Shanghai Gesture that she'll be presenting this Saturday at the Arthur Lines Film Noir Festival in Palm Springs. So take it away, Victoria. Well, my dad was, he was a star of the golden age of Hollywood. He was a leading man in the golden age of Hollywood. He's probably best known, well, he was best known, I think, for his sword and sandal birds, like Samson and Samson and Delilah and Demetrius and the Robe and Demetrius and the sequel, Demetrius and the Gladiators, because those used to be shot on television at Christmas and at Easter for more than 40 years. But now, with the rise of film festivals, and particularly these noir film festivals, I think he's best known now for his noir films, for I Wake Up Screaming from 1941, Kiss of Death, 47, Cry of the City, later on in the 50s, Violent Saturday. So I think 
that's more what he's known for now. He, he's from originally, he was born in Louisville, Kentucky in, in 1913. Well, he was the son of a knife grinder. He came out to Hollywood because he wanted to be an actor. He got discovered by Hal Roach Studios, where he made four films. He made his first film in 1939, and it was a small role, like a gangster part. But he was in the opening scene, and then he had this very sort of noble death scene at one point. And so there were tens of thousands of fan letters that came wondering who this man was. And so they put him in a leading role the next year in 1940. And his first leading role was as Tumac, the caveman, in 1 million BC. Tumac. Tumac? Tumac. The one. The one. The one that, that made the biggest splash and made the most money, of course, was the one where he played a caveman because he and Carol Landis didn't have a lot of clothes on. So my dad realized that if he was going to be known for anything more than grunting and groaning, he was going to have to go to New York. He was going to have to go to Broadway. So... My dad ends up in Lady in the Dark. And from that, he gets wonderful notices in the press. And after that, he comes back to Hollywood. And his first part that he gets, he gets cast by von Sternberg in The Shanghai Gesture. So this is his first leading role with a major director. And while he's filming The Shanghai Gesture, he gets cast by 20th Century Fox in what is arguably the first film noir, I Wake Up Screaming with Betty Grable and Larry Krieger. And before that even premieres, he signed a contract with 20th Century Fox, a major studio. You know, he hadn't really found his niche yet, and he hadn't gotten anything apart from Shanghai Jester and I Wake Up Screaming that really showed what he could do. And so, you know, he didn't even know, like a lot of people after World War II that were in the film business, if he was even going to have a career at that point. And luckily, the, the head of 20th Century Fox, Daryl Zanuck, he really championed my dad and insisted that John Ford cast him in My Darling Clementine, where my dad plays Doc Holliday and gets to recite Shakespeare. The undiscovered country, from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus, conscience does make cowards of us all. <laughs> and that, all of a sudden, everyone started to notice that, oh, wait a minute. He's not just what they called it, that you know, a beautiful hunk of man. He's not just a hunk. He's got chops. He's got acting ability. So then from there, he ends up in um, Kiss of Death in 1947, another really wonderful noir film. And then he's directed by uh, Robert Siodmak in 1948 in Cry of the City. It's fascinating because it's, it's like that success that he has early on in, in, in musicals that leads to the noir films. And it's the noir films that then lead to Samson and Delilah in 1949, which is a huge blockbuster. And, it, and that's, that's the film that catapults my dad into international stardom. Here is the most spectacular scene of destruction ever filmed. Samson using his incredible strength to bring down the Temple of Dagon in crashing ruins. His, his whole career kind of ended with 1984, the TV movie version of Samson and Delilah, where he played Samson's father, 
And he delighted in, in, in the press junkets, always saying, you know, well, if the price was right, I would have played Samson's mother. So my dad never took himself too seriously. And um, one of his famous quotes, very self-deprecating, is when he tried to join the L.A. Country Club at the height of his fame in the 1950s. And you know, he goes to the club, he says, hey, I'd like to be a member. And they say, oh, Victor, I'm so sorry, but we don't allow actors to be members here. And he responds, well. I'm no actor, and I've got 64 pictures to prove it. So he was like that at home. And I think people who worked with him loved him because he was like that in real life. He was funny. And, you know, he worked with the, some of the greatest directors of the 20th century. He worked with, of course, von Sternberg, which is what we're going to talk about today with the, the Shanghai gesture. Now, von Sternberg, he actually, for several years, he didn't have... He had a lot of creative control with, with his films earlier in the 30s, but there were several years before he made The Shanghai Gesture in 1941 where he didn't have that much creative control. But for this film, he had creative control and he chose to change and remove a number of the things that exist in the original John Colton, The Shanghai Gesture play that was a hit on Broadway in the mid-1920s. Some of this was because he had to because of the censors. There were at least 25 different attempts to turn this play into a film. And every single one of those attempts failed when it came to the censors. The censors would not allow it because originally it had to do with not necessarily a gambling palace, but it had to do with an opium den slash brothel. And the main character was named Mother Godam, or Goddamn. And so they had to change that, you know, so it's now it's a gambling palace and the madam of the gambling palace is called. I am Mother Ginsling. This is my place. I hope you will find in it everything you desire. Um, some of the affectations that may have been something that people would have been okay with in the 1920s, thankfully von Sternberg disposes of in his film. Some of, some of the things that I, I really appreciate is how he uses humor. There are two characters in the film that are particularly disrespectful to Chinese people in the film. And in both those cases, one of them is punished severely and the other one is made to look like a complete fool. And there's these three sequences that involve this rugged, middle-aged Russian bartender. And he's not Chinese, but he is disrespected all the same by a lot of the patrons at the gambling palace. But he finds a way to give it back is what he finds, with humor, but it also has dignity. Boy, I'm not a boy. I'm 49 years old, and my name is Vladimir Nikolaevich Kretovozdvizhansky. I know that, that Mother Ginsling has been, there's a number of people who have written about that character, and they, they have a problem with it. They think it's form of cultural appropriation, this and that. There's, there's words like that thrown around. But I don't know if they've actually read the play or actually seen the movie or if they've just seen photographs of it because it, there's a difference. The part of the film that isn't so funny and that kind of creates all the drama is the colonialism and the human trafficking, the sexual trafficking. Our little Chinese girls used to be sold like that not so many years ago. I'm glad such a thing can't take place again. It couldn't have been so very pleasant. And how this has happened to Mother Jin Sling. The reason why she's wearing this wild 
garb. She has these wild costumes, these headdresses. Why she has this makeup on that emphasizes an Asian look. In the 1930s, she is a woman alone who is not entirely of Chinese descent and not entirely white. Is your name Chinese or English? Indeed, ginseng is English. It's a nickname as common in this part of the world as the drinks sold over the counter. And so in that time, and before that time, and I'm sure after that time, there wasn't a, weren't a lot of places where women in that situation could go. And she was trafficked, and she found a way to wear these amazing outfits, wear these headdresses, wear this amazing, these amazing hairdos that come straight out of like Chinese opera. She becomes this word Chinese woman. And it's, you know, it's her armor. And it suits where she is. She's in a gambling palace in Shanghai. Who are you? What's behind this mask of yours? Look at me. Is my face so changed you no longer know me? Or do all Chinese girls look alike to you? Look at me closely. The only mask I wear is the mask of time. Surely you didn't expect shining face and blind love to remain in my face forever? I never saw you in my life. The Honorable Sir Guy chooses not to recognize me, but he chooses to drive me out of Shanghai. What a joke. I dare say he wasn't prepared to meet me again. But we do meet again, and on New Year's Eve, when we pay our debts, great and small. And so it's, it's her way of survival, and it's very self-aware what she's doing with this. It's not something else. And what's funny about that, they, they always, in, in the movie, they keep showing this, this amazing gambling palace. There's these like wide shots of just how big it is and all these different levels of it. And it looks a bit like Dante's Inferno, right? Well, Victoria, did I promise too much? Isn't this place marvelous? Look at those faces. Half of them are Eurasian. Who said never the twain shall meet? Java, Sumatra, Hindu, Chinese, Portuguese, Filipinos, Russians, Malayans. What a witch's suburb. If anyone saw us coming in here, I'd certainly hear plenty. The other places like kindergartens compared with this. They're all so incredibly evil. I didn't think such a place existed, except in my own imagination. It has a ghastly familiarity, like a half-remembered dream. Anything could happen here. Any moment. And, and they talk about it as, you know, a den of iniquity. So because he had full control over the Shanghai jester, he actually created two characters for the movie that didn't exist in the play. And one of them is the chorus girl, the blonde, Dixie Pomeroy, played by Phyllis Brooks, who reminds me of a cross between like Kate Capshaw and Indiana Jones, The Temple of Doom, and a young Shelley Winters. Make up your mind. Either quit shoving or quit pulling. This is the last stop. The other character he creates is my dad's character, Dr. Omar. And Dr. Omar is kind of a wanton character. He's very sensuous. He's very kind of devil may care. He's walking around in these, in these beautiful robes and in this fez hat. At one point early in the film, when he meets Poppy, who is the, the Gene Tierney character, he introduces himself as Dr. Omar. And she says, oh. Any relation to the poet Omar? A book of verses underneath the bow. My dad does in two different places in the film. He's reciting some of the most famous verses from the Rubaiyat by Omar Khayyam. A loaf of bread, a jug of wine, and thou beside me singing in the wilderness. 
But I love watching my dad reciting those verses from the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam in the Shanghai gesture. I like to watch my dad on screen. I like to spend time with him. I like to see those facial expressions that I remember and that I know so well, and that's fun. But then also there's the doctor part of Dr. Omar, which, which the Poppy character, the Jean Tierney character also questions. And she says, You said Dr. Omar. Doctor of what? Doctor of nothing, Miss Smith. It sounds important and hurts no one, unlike most doctors. And it's interesting because there's these photos of von Sternberg in the early, I believe it's the early 30s, maybe the late 20s, early 30s, where he's really very like sultry looking and he's he's like lounging on a couch and he's, you know, giving the, the camera this very like come hither stare. And those pictures of, of von Sternberg, there's similarities between those and a lot of the still shots and the and the single shots of my dad that are just so beautifully lit, you know, with that whole von Sternberg touch, that same sultry, serpentine, you know, wanton kind of look. And it's just interesting that there's such a connection, I think, between the two, you know. Your question insults the house. We buy and sell everything in the most honorable manner. You're a beautiful woman, puppy. The sparkle is artificial. You won't need it. I love the Arthur Lyons Film War Festival. It's one theater, one film at a time. People hang out in the lobby and they, they geek out, you know, on more films and talking about film trivia and history. I really appreciate host and programmer Alan K. Rohde for all he does to make the festival happen and how supportive he and Eddie Muller have been screening my dad's noir films. I appreciate that, both at the Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival and in the Noir City Film Festivals. I, I really appreciate that. And both will be in Palm Springs, of course, so that's exciting. And I have to mention that Josef von Sternberg's son, Nicholas von Sternberg, is the special guest at the festival. He'll be doing a post-screening discussion with festival host Alan K. Rohde. And, of course, I was first introduced to the existence of Nicholas von Sternberg by you, Beth, at your Film Geek San Diego screening of the Rudy Ray Moore film. I prepared for that screening by watching Dolomite Is My Name, the biopic starring Eddie Murphy as Rudy Ray Moore. And one of the characters in that 2019 biopic was Nicholas von Sternberg. He's fresh out of UCLA film school. Turns out he was first the production manager and then the cinematographer, among many other things, and for the Rudy Ray Moore films. I wanted to encourage Alan to invite him to the festival because I thought it would be really wonderful to get to do a post-screening discussion you know, with him and myself and Alan because I thought that would be just an amazing experience. That was Victoria Mature talking about her father, actor Victor Mature. She'll be introducing the Shanghai Gesture this Saturday at the Arthur Lines Film Noir Festival in Palm Springs. I need to take one last break, and then I'll be back with Alan Rohde to discuss Stanley Kubrick's film noir and Robert Mitchum trading in his fedora for a Stetson.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Welcome back to Cinema Junkie. Alan K. Rohde is an author, film historian, and passionate supporter of film noir. This weekend will mark the 23rd anniversary of the noir festival he co-founded with Arthur Lyons in Palm Springs. In the early days, guests like Tony Curtis, Jane Russell, and Ernest Borgnine graced the stage and talked about their films. Now the festival often brings out the children of classic noir stars, like Victor Mature's daughter, Victoria. But what Alan says remains timeless is the whole theatrical experience of watching great movies on the big screen in a darkened theater with like-minded film lovers. That never goes out of style. And for me, what also never goes out of style is film noir. These films of the 40s and 50s never seem dated because they're not about presenting the moral code of their times or painting a pretty picture of society. They look to the underbelly of society to explore a moral ambiguity that feels timeless. I asked if Alan also felt that these films hold up better than other movies from the same time period. There's a connectivity between the next generation or the, or the youngest generation and classic film, and that umbilical is film noir. Because as you said, Film noir has a timeless continuum because it's about some of the attributes and some of the not so nice attributes of the human condition. And whereas uh, modern audiences might do a double take because a doctor in a maternity ward has a lit cigarette in his mouth and why is the phone the size of a boomerang and the steering wheel and cars are like trash can lids in diameter. But once you get past all of that, it's very basic human stories. And dating back to when Arthur Lyons and I founded this festival, his saying about the festival was, it's all in the story. And I think that that's very, very true. And it's true of all of these movies I program. And I think that's what that's what makes them so appealing to such a wide range of audiences. And they were not films that were very accepting of the status quo in the sense of a lot of kind of breaking of stereotypes and also just questioning what the kind of social morality is of the time. And, you know, that's part of what made them kind of daring at the time they came out. But that seems very contemporary. A lot of the kind of anti-heroes you have and even the femme fatales. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, it's uh, very often it's crime depicted, bad things depicted from the perspective of the criminals. And a lot of times the criminals are, these are working class guys trying to get by. The first movie we're showing, The Killing, produced by James B. Harris and directed by Stanley Kubrick in 1956, is one of Hollywood's most acclaimed heist films. 
and it's taken from Lionel White's book, and it shows the whole putting together of this big racetrack heist. Give or take a few thousand. I figure the loot on this deal at two million. There should be that much in the track offices. And how it's put together, by whom, and how it's executed, and so forth. It's from the perspective of people that are working class guys. And femme fatales, sometimes I think femme fatales get this kind of mansplaining definition, which is incorrect. A lot of times the female characters in film noir are labeled as like, you know, the stereotypical female black widow spider that eats the male after they mate or something along those lines. From what I see, these women are in bad situations a lot of times in a male dominated world. And you know what? They're doing the best they can. They're trying to get along and take care of themselves. So as far as I'm concerned, kudos to all the femme fatales out there. <laughs> well, and also a lot of these women that are in film noir are women who are driving the story in a lot of ways and are not merely like decorations or just mere supporting characters in these stories. Absolutely. In fact, when you watch The Killing, Marie Windsor is probably, I think she's like, fourth or fifth build, I can't remember. But Marie is the one that drives all the action and she's married to, of all people, Elijah Cook Jr. What a pairing that is, Marie Windsor and Elijah Cook Jr. Why did you ever marry me anyway? Oh, George, when a man has to ask his wife that, well, he just hadn't met her, that's all. Why talk about it? Maybe it's all to the good in the long run. After all, if people didn't have headaches, what would happen to the aspirin industry? You used to love me. You said you did anyway. I seem to recall you made a memorable statement, too. Something about hitting it rich and having an apartment on Park Avenue and a different car for every day of the week. Not that I really care about such things, understand, as long as I have a big, handsome, intelligent brute like you. It would make a difference, wouldn't it? If I had money, I mean. How would you define money, George? Now, if you're thinking of giving me your collection of Roosevelt I mean big money. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. You really don't feel well, do you? Are you sure that pain's in your stomach? I'm going to have it, Sherry. Hundreds of thousands, maybe a half a million. <laughs> of course you are, darling. Did you put the right address on the envelope when you sent it to the North Pole? But all of the stuff that happens and uh, when things start going downhill and they get worse, it's all due to Marie. And she's kind of the fulcrum point of all this bad stuff that's going to happen in the film. So... You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Now, your festival is in Palm Springs, but we do have a strong San Diego connection this year because you'll be showing The Shanghai Gesture, which is a Victor Mature film, and uh, Victoria Mature, who is a resident here in San Diego, will be introducing it. So tell us about this film because it's not screened often. No, it, not only is it not screened often, I have managed to get the only, to my knowledge, the only restored 35 millimeter print from the George Eastman House Museum in Rochester, New York, which is not the typical place that lends out films. And I've managed to get this. And Victoria has become a stalwart supporter of the festival. We've shown several of her father's films. And Victoria last year did a... Uh, cabaret performance where she sang and there were film clips of her father and she actually had herself cut into the frame of the film in period costume where she's exchanging dialogue with her father 
And it was just fantastic. And she did that as a fundraiser for the festival and for me, which I deeply appreciate. In addition to having Victoria there for, for this, I'm going to have the son of the director, the legendary Joseph von Sternberg, Nicholas von Sternberg, will be there. So I'm going to have the son of the director of the film and the daughter of the star. And where else can you see this film is like a melodramatic fever dream of a lurid play that was banned for 15 years until Arnold Pressburger and von Sternberg managed to get their script approved. And it, it is just a very weirdly bizarre, fun movie. And to show it with, with two guests. And I should mention, in addition to the, the San Diego connection of Victoria, I lived in San Diego for a quarter century. And I spent the places that I've lived. I grew up on the East Coast and I came up to L.A. 22 years ago and I'm dating myself again. But I spent more time in San Diego living in places like Linda Vista, Tierra Sana, and Scripps Ranch. So I still feel like I'm a native San Diegan by proxy, even though I live in Los Angeles. And tell us a little bit about this film. It's really weird. It originally took place in a body house in the Orient with Gene Tierney as a British thrush and Victor Mature donning a fez as the character named Dr. Omar. And Walter Houston is a British uh, expat and, and is trying to buy this casino. And they turned the body house into a casino and they cleaned up a lot of the play because they just couldn't get it past the censors any other way. Uh, Mother Jin Slings, who's played by Ona Munson. And of course, this was when Asians in films, a lot of them were played by Anglo or European actors. Behave yourself, Poppy. You're in China and you're white. It's not good for us to see you like this. You'll bring discredit to your race if you continue. Don't preach to me! And let my race take care of itself! What's upsetting you? What's the matter? Didn't I lose enough tonight? So far, you've lost nothing but pieces of paper with my endorsement on them. You wouldn't endorse anything that wouldn't be paid. I know it'll be paid. So there's a lot of melodrama, there's a lot of sexual innuendo. It's part noir, part culture piece, part melodrama. It's really kind of a salad of different genres, but it's, it's fascinating and very, very rarely seen. So I think the audience there is looking forward to it. I am. Now, another film that you're showing is a film that you introduced me to at the recent TCM Film Festival, which is Blood on the Moon. And what I love about this is it's both a film noir and a Western. Blood on the Moon, a peril-packed saga of the grazing lands, of stampeding cattle and ruthless men who ride by day and kill by night. Blood on the Moon, starring Robert Mitchum. I've been fascinated with this film for many years. I thought it was very undervalued, although it did get good reviews when it came out in 1948 and was forgotten. It stars Robert Mitchum. It was the first A picture, if you will, directed by the great Robert Wise, who went on to do legendary films in every genre, like The Day the Earth Stood Still, 
and West Side Story and The Sound of Music and Star Trek, etc. He had a very long career, but this was his first A picture after directing a lot of very solid B pictures for Val Luton at RKO. I was so taken with this film, I wrote a book about it. And the book has been published by the University Press in New Mexico. It's a, it's a very short book, uh, but it goes into the whole film, how it was made, the backstory, and how the changing culture of World War II that really birthed the film noir movement affected other genres, particularly the Western. In this particular movie, as since we watched it together at TCM, we can both recognize this, Mitchum basically ditches his fedora and trench coat for a Stetson and chaps. And the picture opens with him riding over a mountain in Sedona, Arizona, because part of it was filmed on location in Arizona. And he could have been walking down a back alley of downtown LA in the rain. And the plot is the same where things happen and things and people and characters turn out to be not what they seem to be. And there's government corruption, romantic betrayals, thievery, lust, larceny, all of those attributes that we love so much about people in film noir movies. And But it is a film noir Western, and it was gorgeously photographed by the ace noir cinematographer, Nicholas Musaraka. Uh, and it has the mood. And along with Mitchum, you have Barbara Bel Geddes, Robert Preston, the great Walter Brennan, Phyllis Thaxter, Tom Tully, Frank Phelan, and of course, Charles McGraw, wearing a bearskin coat, chewing on a cigar. Perfect casting. It's a great, I, I, it's a terrific movie. Yeah, you mentioned the photography in that, and some of those shots really look exactly like you would see in a contemporary city set noir film, but with this, you know, contrasting lighting, and it was gorgeous. Oh yeah, the, the Churacrosco lighting, and a lot of the film was actually shot at night where Wise didn't use filters on the camera to give the impression of night. He actually filmed it at night. And as I mentioned, it was shot in Sedona. Then part of it was shot at the old Encino RKO Ranch that is now Parkland on Burbank Boulevard. And it was shot on the RKO lot uh, ironically, some of the cattle stampedes and some of the scenes were shot there with Robert Mitchum. And then after the movie wrapped, about three or four months later, he was infamously arrested for possession of marijuana, the famous pot bust in 1948. And he ended up pleading guilty and serving time at the stake work farm, which was right where he was filming <laughs> Blood in the Moon a couple months earlier. So uh, you can't make some of this stuff up. It's it's very there's a lot of irony in the making of Blood on the Moon that I that was fun to write about. Now I just mentioned the TCM Film Festival and this festival is very different in the sense of there's not running around from venue to venue. What's really wonderful about this is you can see all the films and there's no competition <laughs> within. Isn't that nice? <laughs> Well, I think part of that, that the way I schedule the films kind of fits with the ambience of Palm Springs because you don't have valet parking, you don't have traffic, wherever you're staying, everything is close, it's all out on a grid, so you just, when it's time to the movie, you get there 
15 minutes or a half hour before you drive into a parking lot you go in I, I keep calling it the Camelot theaters but it's now the Palm Springs Cultural Center because the couple that owned it uh, Rick and Rosine Supple they were great philanthropists in Palm Springs they were good friends to me they deeded the theater and started the nonprofit cultural center. In effect, they gave the entire theater complex to the city of Palm Springs. So the theater itself has two bars. It has an elevator. It has a restaurant. So you don't have to go anywhere. This is to me the best place for adults to see a film noir. Where else can you get a martini and then walk in the theater and watch Robert Mitchum? You know, he would approve of that, by the way, I must say. So it's a great place, a great ambience. And uh, for your San Diego viewers, all you have to do is drive. Takes takes about an hour and a half to two hours to go to Palm Springs. And it's a great way, to, a great relaxing way to enjoy movies and enjoy the weekend. And we have a very loyal audience. And you never know who's going to show up in Palm Springs from a celebrity point of view. So it's it's a lot of fun. It's a great weekend. All right. Well, I know there's a lot more films that you will be screening and that we could talk about. But um, I want to thank you for giving us a little bit of a preview for this year's Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival. Well, Beth, I always appreciate you and I always appreciate KPBS. And I thank you for having me on. And uh, to everybody else, I'll see you at the movies. That was author and film historian Alan K. Rohde. He'll be hosting the 23rd Arthur Lines Film Noir Festival in Palm Springs, May 11th through the 14th. If you can't make the festival, you can find the films we discussed streaming online. And you can buy his book on Blood on the Moon to dig deep into his insights. Rody will be in San Diego on June 17th to present a pair of Michael Curtiz's two-strip technicolor horror films from the 1930s, Dr. X and Mystery of the Wax Museum. Rody penned a biography of Curtiz and will share his thoughts about these rare horror films from the man who gave us Casablanca, Mildred Pierce, and Yankee Doodle Dandy, among many more. That wraps up another edition of KPBS listener-supported Cinema Junkie. If you enjoy the podcast, then please share it with a friend because your recommendation is the best way to build an addicted audience. You can also help by leaving a review. Till our next Film Fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.